Section 15 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksy. Chapter 7 An Oversensitive Heart. Part 2. The appointed day and hour were at hand. Fernand Rocher had engaged a barouche, which was to take him and his lovely victim to a little house at Auteuil, which he had rented for the purpose. There the lovers were to lie perdu until such time as Papa Goldberg had relented, and the marriage could be duly solemnized in the synagogue of the Rue des Halles. Sarah had offered in the meanwhile to do all that in her power lay to soften the old man's heart and to bring about the happy conclusion of the romantic adventure. For the latter we had chosen the night of May 23rd. It was a moonless night, and the passage Corneille, from where I was to operate, was most usefully dark. Sarah Goldberg had, according to convention, left the postern gate on the latch, and at ten o'clock precisely i made my way up the cul-de-sac and cautiously turned the handle of the door i confess that my heart beat somewhat uncomfortably in my bosom i had left rocher and his barouche in the rue de pipot about a hundred metres from the angle of the passage corneille and it was along those hundred metres of a not altogether unfrequented street that he expected me presently to carry a possibly screaming and struggling burden in the very teeth of a gendarmerie always on the lookout for exciting captures. No, sir, that was not to be, and it was with a resolute if beating heart that I presently felt the postern gate yielding to the pressure of my hand. The neighbouring church clock of St. Sulpice had just finished striking ten. I pushed open the gate and tiptoed across the threshold. In the garden the boughs of a dilapidated old ash-tree were sowing in the wind above my head, whilst from the top of the boundary wall the jarring and jowling of beasts of the feline species grated unpleasantly on my ear. I could not see my hand before my eyes, and had just stretched it out in order to guide my footsteps when it was seized with a kindly yet firm pressure, whilst a voice murmured softly, Hush! Who is it? I whispered in response. It is I, Sarah, the voice replied. Everything is all right, but Leah is unsuspecting. I am sure that if she suspected anything, she would not set foot outside the door. What shall we do? I asked. Wait here a moment quietly, Sarah rejoined speaking in a rapid whisper under cover of this wall within the next few minutes leah will come out of the house i have left my knitting upon a garden chair and i will ask her to run out and fetch it that will be your opportunity the chair is in the angle of the wall there she added pointing to her right not three paces from where you are standing now leah has a white dress on she will have to stoop in order to pick up the knitting I have taken the precaution to entangle the wool in the leg of the chair, so she will be some few seconds entirely at your mercy. Have you a shawl? 
I had, of course, provided myself with one. A shawl is always a necessary adjunct to such adventures. Breathlessly, silently, I intimidated to my kind accomplice that I would obey her behests and that I was prepared for every eventuality. The next moment her hold upon my hand relaxed. She gave another quickly whispered hush and disappeared into the night. For a second or two after that my ear caught the soft sound of her retreating footsteps, then nothing more. To say that I felt anxious and ill at ease was but to put it mildly. I was face to face with an adventure which might cost me at least five years' acute discomfort in New Caledonia, but which might also bring me as rich a reward as could befall any man of modest ambitions, a lovely wife and a comfortable fortune. My whole life seemed to be hanging on a thread, and my overwrought senses seemed almost to catch the sound of the spinning wheel of fate weaving the web of my destiny. A moment or two later I again caught the distinct sound of a gentle footfall upon the soft earth. My eyes by now were somewhat accustomed to the gloom. It was very dark, you understand, but through the darkness I saw something white moving slowly toward me. Then my heart thumped more furiously than ever before. I dared not breathe. I saw the lovely Leah approaching, or, rather, I felt her approach, for it was too dark to see. She moved in the direction which Sarah had indicated to me as being the place where stood the garden chair, with a knitting upon it. I grasped the shawl. I was ready. Another few seconds of agonizing suspense went by. The fair Leah had ceased to move. Undoubtedly she was engaged in disentangling the wool from the leg of the chair. That was my opportunity. More stealthy than any cat, I tiptoed toward the chair. And, indeed, at that moment I blessed the sudden yowl set up by some feline in its wrath which rent the still night air and effectually drowned any sound which I might make. There, not three paces away from me, was the dim outline of the young girl's form vaguely discernible in the gloom. A white mass, almost motionless, against a background of inky blackness. With a quick intaking of my breath, I sprang forward, the shawl outspread in my hand, and with a quick, dexterous gesture, I threw it over her head, and the next second had her, faintly struggling in my arms. She was as light as a feather, and I was as strong as a giant. Think of it, sir. There was I, alone in the darkness, holding in my arms together with a lovely form, a fortune of two hundred thousand francs. Of that fool Fernand Rocher I did not trouble to think. He had a barouche waiting up the Rue de Pipeau, a hundred meters from the corner of the Passage Corneille, but I had a chaise and a pair of horses waiting down that same street, and that now was my objective. Yes, sir, I had arranged the whole thing, but I had done it for mine own advantage, not for that of the miserly friend who had been too great a coward to risk his own skin for the sake of his beloved. 
The guerdon was mine, and I was determined this time that no traitor or ingrate should filch me from the reward of my labours. With the thousand francs which Rocher had given me for my services, I had engaged the chairs and horses, paid the coachman lavishly, and secured a cosy little apartment for my future wife in a pleasant hostelry I knew of at Sorisny. I had taken the precaution to leave the wicket gate on the latch. With my foot I pushed it open, and keeping well under the cover of the tall convent wall, I ran swiftly to the corner of the Rue de Pipot. Here I paused a moment. Through the silence of the night my ear caught the faint sound of horses snorting and harness dingling in the distance, both sides from where I stood. But of gendarmes or passers-by there was no sign. Gathering up the full measure of my courage and holding my precious burden closer to my heart, I ran quickly down the street. Within the next few seconds I had the seemingly inanimate maiden safely deposited in the inside of the barouche, and myself sitting by her side. The driver cracked his whip, and whilst I, happy but exhausted, was mopping my streaming forehead, the chairs rattled gaily along the uneven pavements of the great city in the direction of Suresne. What that fool Rocher was doing I could not definitely ascertain. I looked through the vasistas of the coach, but could see nothing in pursuit of us. Then I turned my full attention to my lovely companion. It was pitch dark inside the carriage, you understand, only from time to time, as we drove past an overhanging street lanthorn, I caught a glimpse of that priceless bundle beside me, which lay there so still and so snug, still wrapped up in the shawl. With cautious loving fingers I undid its folds. Under cover of the darkness, the sweet and modest creature, released of her bonds, turned for an instant to me, and for a few very few happy seconds i held her in my arms have no fear fair one i murmured in her ear it is i hector ratichon who adores you and who cannot live without you forgive me for this seeming violence which was prompted by an undying passion and remember that to me you are as sacred as a divinity until the happy hour when i can proclaim you to the world as my beloved wife i pressed her against my heart and my lips imprinted a delicate kiss upon her forehead after which with chaste decorum she once more turned away from me covered her face and head with a shawl and drew back into the remote corner of the carriage where she remained silent and absorbed no doubt in the contemplation of her happiness I respected her silence, and I too fell to meditating upon my good fortune. Here was I, sir, within sight of a haven, wherein I could live through the twilight of my days in comfort and in peace. A beautiful young wife, a modest fortune. I had never in my wildest dreams envisaged a fate more fair. The little house at Chantilly which I coveted the plot of garden, the espalier peaches, all, all would be mine now. It seemed indeed too good to be true. 
The very next moment I was rudely awakened from those golden dreams by a loud clatter and stern voices shouting the ominous word, HALT! The carriage drew up with such a jerk that I was flung off my seat against the front window and my nose seriously bruised. A faint cry of terror came from the precious bundle beside me. Have no fear, my beloved, I whispered hurriedly. Your own Hector will protect you. Already the door of the carriage had been violently torn open. The next moment a gruff voice called out peremptorily, By order of the chief commissary of police. I was dumbfounded. In what manner had the chief commissary of police been already apprised of this affair? The whole thing was, of course, a swift and vengeful blow dealt to me by that cowardly Rocher. But how, in the name of thunder, had he got to work so quickly? But, of course, there was no time now for reflection. The gruff voice was going on more peremptorily and more insistently. Is Hector Ratichon here? I was dumb. My throat had closed up and I could not have uttered a sound to save my life. The police had even got my name quite straight. Now then, Ratichon, that same irascible voice continued, get out of there. In the name of the law I charge you with the abduction of a defenceless female, and my orders are to bring you forthwith before the chief commissary of police. Then it was that bliss once more re-entered my soul. I had just felt a small hand pressing something crisp into mine, whilst a soft voice whispered in my ear, Give him this, and tell him to let you go in peace. Say that I am Mademoiselle Goldberg, your promised wife. The feel of that crackling note in my hand at once restored my courage. Covering the lovely creature beside me with a protecting arm, I replied boldly to the minion of the law. This lady, I said, is my affianced wife. You, Sir Gendarme, are overstepping your powers. I demand that you let us proceed in peace. My orders are, the Gendarme resumed, but already my sensitive ear had detected a faint wavering in the gruffness of his voice. The hectoring tone had gone out of it. I could not see him, of course, but somehow I felt that his attitude had become less arrogant and his glance more shifty. This gentleman has spoken the truth, now came in soft, dulcet tones from under the shawl that wrapped the head of my beloved. I am Mademoiselle Goldberg, Monsieur le Gendarme and I am travelling with Monsieur Hector Ratichon entirely of my own free will, since I have promised him that I would be his wife. Ah, the gendarme ejaculated, obviously mollified. If Mademoiselle is the fiancée of Monsieur, and is acting of her own free will? It is not for you to interfere, eh, my friend? I broke in jocosely. You will now let us proceed in peace, and for your trouble you will no doubt accept this token of my consideration. And groping in the darkness, I found the rough hand of the gendarme, and speedily pressed into it the crisp note which my adored one had given to me. Ah, he said with very obvious gratification, 
If Monsieur Ratichon will assure me that Mademoiselle here is indeed his affianced wife, then indeed it is not a case of abduction and— Abduction, I retorted, flaring up in righteous indignation. Who dares to use the word in connection with this lovely lady? Mademoiselle Goldberg, I swear, will be Madame Ratichon within the next four-and-twenty hours, and the sooner you, Sir Gendarme, allow us to proceed on our way, the less pain will you cause to this distressed and virtuous damsel. This settled the whole affair quite comfortably. The gendarme shut the carriage door with a bang, and at my request gave the order to the driver to proceed. The latter once again cracked his whip, and once again the cumbrous vehicle, after an awkward lurch, rattled on its way along the cobblestones of the sleeping city. Once more I was alone with the priceless treasure by my side, alone and happy, more happy, I might say, than I had been before. Had not my adored one openly acknowledged her love for me, and her desire to stand with me, at the hymenal altar. To put it vulgarly, though vulgarity in every form is repellent to me, she had burnt her boats. She had allowed her name to be coupled with mine in the presence of the minions of the law. What, after that, could her father do but give his consent to a union which alone would save his only child's reputation from the cruelty of waggish tongues? No doubt, sir, that I was happy. True that when the uncouth gendarme finally slammed to the door of our carriage and we restarted on our way, my ears had been unpleasantly tickled by the sound of prolonged and ribald laughter, laughter which sounded strangely and unpleasantly familiar. But after a few seconds' serious reflection, I dismissed the matter from my thoughts. If, as indeed I gravely suspected, it was Fernand Rocher who had striven thus to put a spoke in the wheel of my good fortune, he would certainly not have laughed when I drove triumphantly away with my conquered bride by my side. And, of course, my ears must have deceived me when they caught the sound of a girl's merry laugh mingling with the more ribald one of the man. I have paused purposely, sir, ere I embark upon the narration of the final stage of this, my life's adventure. The chaise was bowling along the banks of the river towards Rusny. Presently the driver struck to his right and plunged into the fastness of the Bois de Boulogne. For a while, therefore, we were in utter darkness. My lovely companion neither moved nor spoke. Somewhere in the far distance a church clock struck eleven. One whole hour had gone by since first I had embarked on this great undertaking. I was excited, feverish. The beautiful Leah's silence and tranquillity grated upon my nerves. I could not understand how she could remain there so placid when her whole life's happiness had so suddenly, so unexpectedly been assured. I became more and more fidgety as time went on. Soon I felt that I could no longer hold myself in proper control. Being of an impulsive disposition, this tranquil acceptance of so great a joy became presently intolerable. 
and, unable to restrain my ardour any longer, I seized that passive bundle of loveliness in my arms. "'Have no fear,' I murmured once again, as I pressed her to my heart. But my admonition was obviously unnecessary. The beautiful Leah showed not the slightest sign of fear. She rested her head against my shoulder and put one arm around my neck. I was in raptures. Just then the vehicle swung out of the bois and once more rattled upon the cobblestones. This time we were nearing Cerisnay. A vague light emanating from the lanthorns of the bridgehead was already faintly visible ahead of us. Soon it grew brighter. The next moment we passed immediately beneath the lanthorns. The interior of the carriage was flooded with light. And, sir, I gave a gasp of unadulterated dismay. The being whom I held in my arms, whose face was even at that moment raised up to my own, was not the lovely Leah. It was Sarah, sir. Sarah Goldberg, the dour, angular aunt, whose yellow teeth gleamed for one brief moment through her thin lips as she threw me one of those glances of amorous welcome which invariably sent a cold shiver down my spine. Sarah Goldberg, I scarce could believe my eyes, and for a moment did indeed think that the elusive, swiftly vanished light of the bridgehead lanthorns had played my excited senses a weird and cruel trick. But no, the very next second proved my disillusionment. Sarah spoke to me. She spoke to me and laughed. Ah, she was happy, sir, happy in that she had completely and irrevocably tricked me. That traitor, Fernand Rocher, was up to the neck in the plot, which had saddled me for ever with an ugly elderly wife of dour mien and no fortune, while he and the lovely Leah were spinning the threads of perfect love at the other end of Paris, and laughing their fill at my discomfiture. Think, sir, what I suffered during those few brief minutes while the coach lurched through the narrow streets of Cerisnay, and I had perforce to listen to the protestations of undying love from this unprepossessing female. That love, she vowed, was her excuse, and everything she asserted was fair in love and war. She knew that after Rocher had attained his heart's desire and carried off the lady of his choice, which he had successfully done half an hour before I myself made my way up the Passage Corneille, I would pass out of her life for ever. This she could not endure. Life at once would become intolerable, and aided and abetted by Rocher and Leah, she had planned and contrived my mystification, and won me by foul means, since she could not do so by fair and it seemed as if her volubility then was the forecast of what my life with her would be in the future. Talk, 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 she never ceased. She told me the whole story of the abominable conspiracy against my liberty, 
Her brother, Monsieur Goldberg, she explained, had determined upon remarriage. She, Sarah, felt that henceforth she would be in the way of everybody. She would have no home. Leah married to Rocher, a new and young Madame Goldberg, ruling in the old house of the Rue de Médecins. Ah, it was unthinkable. And I, sir, I, Hector Ratichon, had, it appears, by my polite manners and prepossessing ways, induced this dour old maid to believe that she was not altogether indifferent to me. Ah, how I cursed my own charms when I realized whither they had led me. It seemed that it was the fickle jade Leah who first imagined the whole execrable plot. Rocher was to entrust me with the task of carrying off his beloved, and thus I would be tricked in the darkness into abducting Mademoiselle Goldberg senior from her home. Then some friends of Rocher arranged to play the comedy of false gendarmes, and again I was tricked into acknowledging Sarah as my affianced wife before independent witnesses. After that I could no longer repudiate mine honourable intentions, for if I did then I should be arraigned before the law on a criminal charge of abduction. In this comedy of false gendarmes, Rocher himself and the heartless Leah had joined with zest and laughed over my discomfiture, whilst the friends who played their roles to such perfection had a paltry hundred francs each as the price of this infamous trick. Now my doom was sealed, and all that was left for me to do was to think disconsolately over my future. I did bitterly reproach Sarah for her treachery, and tried to steal her protestations of love by pointing out to her that I had absolutely no fortune, and could only offer her a life of squalor, not to say of what. But this she knew, and vowed that penury by my side would make her happier than luxury beside any other man. Ah, sir, it is given to few men to rouse such selfless passion in a woman's heart, and it hath oft been my dream in the past one day thus to be adored for myself alone. But for the moment I was too deeply angered to listen placidly to Sarah's vows of undying affection. My nerves were irritated by her fulsome adulation. Indeed, I could not bear the sight of her, nor yet the sound of her voice. You may imagine how thankful I was when the chaise came at last to halt outside the humble little hostelry where I had engaged the room which I had so fondly hoped would have been occupied by the lovely and fickle Leah. I bundled Mademoiselle Goldberg senior into the house, and here again I had to endure galling mortification in the shape of sidelong glances cast at me and my future bride by the landlord of the hostelry and his ill-bred daughter. When I engaged the room I had very foolishly told them that it would be occupied by a lovely lady who had consented to be my wife, and that she would remain here in happy seclusion until such time as all arrangements for our wedding were complete. The humiliation of these vulgar people's irony seemed like the last straw which overweighed my forbearance. 
the room and pension I had already paid two days in advance, so I had nothing more to say either to the ribald landlord or to Mademoiselle Goldberg, senior. I was bitterly angered against her, and refused her the solace of a kindly look or of an encouraging pressure from my hand, even though she waited for both with the pathetic patience of an old spaniel. I re-entered the coach which was to take me back to mine own humble lodgings in Passy. Here at least I was alone, alone with my gloomy thoughts. My heart was full of wrath against the woman who had so basely tricked me, and I viewed with dismay amounting almost to despair the prospect of spending the rest of my life in her company. That night I slept but little, nor yet the following night, or the night after that. Those days I spent in seclusion, thankful for my solitude. Twice each day did Mademoiselle Goldberg come to my lodgings. In the foolish past I had somewhat injudiciously acquainted her of where I lived. Now she came and asked to be allowed to see me, but invariably did I refuse thus to gratify her. I felt that time alone would perhaps soften my feelings a little towards her. In the meanwhile I must commend her discretion and delicacy of procedure. She did not in any way attempt to molest me. When she was told by Theodore, whom I employed during the day to guard me against unwelcome visitors, that I refused to see her, she invariably went away without demur, nor did she refer in any way, either with adjurations or threats, to the impending wedding. Indeed, sir, she was a lady of vast discretion. On the third day, however, I received a visit from Monsieur Goldberg himself. I could not refuse to see him. Indeed, he would not be denied but roughly pushed Theodore aside, who tried to hinder him. He had come armed with a riding-whip, and nothing but mine own innate dignity saved me from outrage. He came, sir, with a marriage license for his sister and me in one pocket, and with a denunciation to the police against me for abduction in another. He gave me the choice. What could I do, sir? I was like a helpless babe in the hands of unscrupulous brigands. The marriage license was for the following day at the Marie of the Eight Arrondissement first, and in the synagogue of the Rue des Halles afterwards. I chose the marriage license. What could I do, sir? I was helpless. Of my wedding day I have but a dim recollection. It was all hustle and bustle, from the Marie to the synagogue, and thence to the house of Monsieur Goldberg in the Rue de Médecins. I must say that the old usurer received me and my bride with marked amiability. He was, I gathered, genuinely pleased that his sister had found happiness and a home by the side of an honourable man, seeing that he himself was on the point of contracting a fresh alliance with a Jewish lady of unsurpassed loveliness. Of Roger and Leah we saw nothing that day, and from one or two words which Monsieur Goldberg let fall, I concluded that he was greatly angered against his daughter, because of her marriage with the fortune-hunting adventurer, who he weirdly hinted 
had already found quick and exemplary punishment for his crime. I was sincerely glad to hear this, even though I could not get Monsieur Goldberg to explain in what that exemplary punishment consisted. The climax came at six o'clock of that eventful afternoon, at the hour when I, with the newly enthroned Madame Ratichon on my arm, was about to take leave of Monsieur Goldberg. I must admit that at that moment my heart was overflowing with bitterness. I had been led like a lamb to the slaughter. I had been made to look foolish and absurd in the midst of this Israelite community which I despised. I was saddled for the rest of my life with an unprepossessing elderly wife, who could do not for me but share my penury, the hard crusts, the onion pies, with me and Theodore. The only advantage I might ever derive from her was that she would darn my stockings, sew the buttons on my vests, and goffer the frills of my shirts. Was this not enough to turn any man's naturally sweet disposition to gall? No doubt my mobile face betrayed something of the bitterness of my thoughts, for Monsieur Goldberg at one moment slapped me vigorously on the back and bade me be of good cheer, as things were not so bad as I imagined. I was on the point of asking him what he meant when I saw another gentleman advancing toward me. His face, which was sallow and oily, bore a kind of obsequious smile. His clothes were of rusty black, and his features were markedly Jewish in character. He had some law papers under his arm, and was perpetually rubbing his thin bony hands together if he were for ever washing them. Monsieur Hector Ratichon, he said anxiously, it is with much gratification that I bring you the joyful news. Joyful news to me? Ah, sir! The word struck at first with cruel irony upon mine ear, but not so a second later, for the Jewish gentleman went on speaking, and what he said appeared to my reeling senses like songs of angels from paradise. At first I could not grasp his full meaning. A moment ago I had been in the depth of despair, and now, now, a whole vista of beatitude opened out before me. What the worthy Israelite said was that, by the terms of Grandpapa Goldberg's will, if Leah married without her father's consent, one half of the fortune destined for her would revert to her aunt, Sarah Goldberg, now Madame Hector Ratichon. Can you wonder that I could scarce believe my ears? One half that fortune meant that a hundred thousand francs would now become mine. Monsieur Goldberg had already made it very clear to his daughter and to Rocher that he would never give his consent to their marriage, and as this was now consummated, they had already forfeited one half of the grandfather's fortune in favour of my Sarah. That was the exemplary punishment which they were to suffer for their folly. But their folly, ay, and their treachery had become my joy. In this moment of heavenly rapture I was speechless. 
but I turned to Sarah with loving arms outstretched, and the next instant she nestled against my heart like a joyful, if elderly, bird. What is said of a people, sir, is also true of the individual. Happy he who hath no history. Since that never-to-be-forgotten hour my life has run its simple, uneventful course, here in this quiet corner of our beautiful France, with my pony and my dog and my chickens, and Madame Ratichon to minister to my creature comforts. I bought this little property, sir, soon after my marriage, and my office in the Rue de Nau knows me no more. You like the house, sir? Ah, yes. And the garden? After déjeuner you must see my prize chickens. Theodore will show them to you. You did not know Theodore was here? Well, yes, he lives with us. Madame Ratichon finds him useful about the house, and, uh, not being used to luxuries, he is on the whole pleasantly contented. Ah, here comes Madame Ratichon to tell us that the déjeuner is served. This way, sir, under the porch, after you. The End End of chapter 7, part 2 And end of the book Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi Read by Lars Rolander Thank you for listening.